If you want access to bonus episodes, reading lists for every series of Empire, a chat community, discounts for all the books mentioned in the week's podcast, ad-free listening, and a weekly newsletter, sign up to Empire Club at www.empirepoduk.com. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Empire with the Stop Laughing. There's no laughing matter with me, Anita Arnold. And me, William Dalrymple. Can I just say, you join us. Having quite a warm up. Don't people sometimes very kindly talk about the chemistry between us? I think it's been combustible. (laughs) I just want to say that, you know, I really don't mind the fact that you took 20 minutes to get your equipment working. And it's absolutely fine. And I in no way hold you responsible. It's absolutely fine. You are very lucky that you are in a different time zone, is all I'm saying. (laughs) And on a different continent, is what I'm adding. Because if there were a bar graph of the number of technical (laughs) foolishness and the beginning of this. It is true. There have been a few power cuts on the farm. Yeah, power cuts, cups of coffee, trips to God knows where, um, not understanding that nine o'clock is nine o'clock. I mean, that's complete defiance of the laws of the time-space continuum. I don't know what you're talking about. Punctuality is my watchword in all things. Oh, just wait. Where are you, first of all? Where are you? You're not where you should be. So I am sitting in New York. What you doing there? I am about to go to a conference at the Metropolitan Museum about Mm. uh, early Buddhist art, which I'm looking forward to tomorrow. Very exciting. Uh, And have been pitching a show on my new book to a uh, museum here, which still has to keep under wraps. But anyway. (laughs) You've done a bang up (laughs) job. told half a million people. (laughs) He's he's in New York (laughs) and he's discussing a big show. And uh, listen, look, this is uh, very exciting because we are talking about things that are kind of unraveling around us in, in real time. Now, I mean, we're talking about the conquest of Central Asia, but if we just turn our minds just for a second to the Caucasus at the moment, because they are very much in the news. And this whole series is about Russia and the Russian Empire. And what's been going on, we're recording this on a Thursday, so a week before you're going to be hearing it. But we've had, William, the fall of, well, can you call it the fall of Nagorno-Karabakh? But you've certainly got reports of Armenians leaving, fleeing. In vast caravans, large numbers of cars back to back, 
up these winding roads to Armenia. Yes, and this is very much a legacy of these disparate places and people that were gathered together as part of the Russian Empire, I mean, and then sort of left and then came back under the Soviet era and now are again re-evaluating what they are, who they are and where they want to be. And what we're finding now more and more, I think, with this podcast is that all the different series are sort of fitting together in a jigsaw. And people may remember in our Ottoman series earlier in the year, we talked about the Armenian genocide and the possibly 1.5 million who were killed then during the First World War. And all that was left of Armenia as an area settled by Armenian Christians was the fragment of historic Armenia that was under Russian control. Uh, And then there was this mixed area, Nagorno-Karabakh. And that area is now seeing the same sort of uh, mass exodus that we saw, for example, in the Smyrna episodes. Right. It's still this story of the unraveling uh, of these places that were once mixed, places where minorities can be majorities. We've seen that in our episode on partition. And how things can just turn overnight. I mean, the speed at which, I mean, these are deep-rooted issues, but it turns on a sixpence when it turns, doesn't it? And suddenly people are just unplugging everything that they own and trying to leave. And our subject today is an extraordinary bit of imperial history that's almost never been told. It's the story of how an area about half the size of the United States, which is absorbed by the Russian Empire after the Treaty of Vienna, after the end of Napoleon and and Waterloo, at a time when European empires generally in Asia are stabilizing. Mm. But the Russians keep moving. And they add, in the course of, well, about 60 years, this vast 1.5 million square miles of territory and at least 6 million people Mm. to their empire. And what is extraordinary about it, looking from our point of view, is A, that this holds, this remains under Russian rule until the breakup of the USSR. It is an area which is a Muslim area, which is ruled by Christians who are looking down on these Central Asians as savages, barbarians, cowardly, backward. These sort of words are being used by Russians of Central Asians. And it's particularly ironic to talk about the people of Central Asia as barbarous, because as anyone that's ever read Peter Frankopan's wonderful book, The Silk Roads, or I strongly recommend Frederick Starr's book called Lost Enlightenment about all the extraordinary things that emerged from Central Asia. And in an earlier age, when Central Asia was ruled by Persia, it was the eastern half of Persia, the ancient kingdom that was ruled from Persepolis, stretched right out, way beyond the Caspian Sea uh, and way beyond the Pamirs. And many of the most famous Persian poets like Ferdowsi and Rumi were from Khorasan and Khorasm, and also many of the greatest scientists, geographers, and thinkers in history, people like Al-Biruni, Al-Farabi, and most importantly, Khwarizmi. His name, Khwarizm, is the area we're talking about being conquered. And his name, Arabicized to Al-Khwarizmi, then becomes Latinized to give us the word we have today, algorithm. Right. Do you know, the other thing that's very interesting about this is that when you look at the history of this region, it's often couched in terms of the Great Game, which we've described before as being entirely offensive to the people who are affected in these regions, as if there are two great powers who are deciding what happens to a space of land with no people in it. 
and yeah. with no agency at all. Exactly. And that, that is very much being reevaluated now with people going into archives in these places, discovering what has been written by the other side. So it really is a much more complex thing than, than Britain and Russia are trying to grab some land and the land has nothing to say about it. I grew up reading the wonderful books of Peter Hopcutt, The Great Game. His books you know, were very much based on Raj travelogues and, and British accounts of that part of the world with a few Russian voices. They had virtually no voices from the region, which was colonized and conquered. And I think you and I have both been reading this week in preparation for this pod, the extraordinary book by a man called Alexander Morrison, a oh, wonderful fellow of all souls. hugely impressed by that. Amazing book called The Russian Conquest mm. of Central Asia. And very gently, he rolls back a lot of the preconceptions that we've grown up with, those of us that read Peter Hopkirk. Because he's been in the archives. Yeah. And one thing that I found really interesting is there's this word that I've learned from Morrison. It's the way in which the Russians describe the people of the steppe. And it's exactly the same as they're described in sort of dispatches here in, in Great Britain. And the word is dieshka. It means insolent. And every time they refer to, you know, any of these tribal people, it is with this word as if they are unruly, insolent children, dieshka. It comes up again and again in official documents that he's been looking at. This is a good moment, perhaps, to read the Russian foreign minister. Prince Gorkachev, justifying the Russian expansion into Central Asia, the subject of today's podcast. And he's writing in 1864, and listen to this language, it sounds so like Curzon talking about Indians or any of those Victorian imperialists of the similar sort of age. The position of Russia in Central Asia is that of all civilized states which are brought into contact with half-savage nomad populations, possessing no fixed social organization. In such cases, it always happens that the more civilized state is forced, in the interest of the security of its frontiers and its commercial relations, to exercise a certain ascendancy over those whose turbulent and unsettled character makes them undesirable neighbors. <laughs> so let's talk about this region. Let's talk about the people who lived in it, because it is a complicated picture. So yeah. bear with us. We're going to try and hold your hand and, and take you through this as best we can. I mean, the first thing to mention is that there are settled people and there are nomadic people historically in this region. We're talking about the area east of the Caspian Sea and north of the Pamirs. So there's a great region between mm. what has been since the time of Catherine the Great, Russia, and northern Afghanistan. Yeah. And this has areas of great fertility, such as a place we will be talking a lot about today, Fergana, which is where the Emperor Baba was originally born. The opening lines of the Babonama have this lovely line saying, it is so fertile and the pheasants are so fat that a single one can make soup for 10 people. This is an exile writing in India at the end of his life, remembering the, the rich lands of his childhood. I mean, and these days, of course, I mean, it's known as the, well, in America, the stans, but the stans, and, and stan means land of, it's from Persian, Urdu, a stem. But we're talking Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, that kind of region. And what I was saying about the sort of the, the settled and the nomadic people of this region, you have these wonderful terms to describe some of those who move around in, in caravan cultures, you know, the great horde, the middle horde, the junior horde. And then you have different types of people, you know, the Kazakhs are a people, the Uzbeks are a people. Turkmen. Turkmen. They're, they're, and exactly. Kazakhs is the same word as Cossacks. Cossack, indeed. Yeah. You've been around here. Can you just describe the geography to us and a little bit more about 
the different places, which now we have national boundaries for, but before was this whole region in Central Asia. So I know quite well, my sister-in-law was the UN rep there. And it turned out that, in fact, to fly from Delhi to Tashkent is a shorter plane ride than flying from Delhi to Mumbai. Really? It's so close. And, and of course, Kabul is even closer than that. We always forget how close mm. to the north all these places are to northern India. And I went a lot when uh, my sister-in-law was living there and traveled. I went to uh, places we'll be speaking today, these great cities, Bukhara, Kiva, Tashkent, Samarkand, which are cities of great antiquity. They're cities that were conquered by Alexander the Great and were already old then. They're cities which have been centers of learning, civilization, Islamic law, poetry, the study of mathematics and geometry, particularly in the early centuries CE, and saw some of the great intellectuals of the Persian world. Traditionally, historically, Persian was the lingua franca across this entire region. And as we said earlier, many of the greatest poets and thinkers of Persian history lived not in what is now Iran within the national boundaries that we see today on the map, but over this area, the Stans, which was historic Persia in ancient times. But to call them sort of the, the Stans and to suggest that they are sort of this one amorphous, mm. to use the word is your blob, if you like, of existence, is to ignore actually how very different some of the peoples were in Correct. these places. So, you know, if you go to the Pamir Mountains, and, and much was made by the Russians at this time in the 1800s, the period of history that we're going to be talking about, those who were in the Pamirs, the Tajiks, were much more Aryan. I mean, they use sort of the words yep. similar to Aryan. You know, they are the sons of Alexander. Lots of green eyes, lots of brown hair. Blonde and brown yep. hair, and they've got fair skin. And so there is a great deal more empathy towards them than there is to those who have, you know, so the, the Arab blood. Well, this was Persia, and Persia is Iran is the same word as Aryan. So mm -hmm. it, it shouldn't be a surprise. Shall we get stuck in then? then we're, we're, we're talking about Central Asia for a while in this podcast. So, so this is a land of arid plains, deserts. And what is the interest? Why would anybody want to be here? Well, it's fantastically fertile areas. I mean, for example, Fergana, where Baba was from, which is east and south of Tashkent, is as gorgeous as Kashmir. And it's interesting because I'd always, having read Baba, thought of, of visiting this area. People warned me off in my 20s saying it's now been turned into sort of cottonopolis by the Soviets. The, there are smokestacks and belching factories everywhere. But in fact, the cotton industry has completely disappeared now because the Soviets overplanted a monocrop, all the land salinated, they ceased to be able to grow cotton there, and there's a lot of now completely dead soil uh, where the old Soviet factories used to be. But the factories have been dismantled, a lot of the areas returned to sort of pastoral farming with goats and camels too. Mm. And it's a most beautiful place to visit. Now. And geographically locate Fergana for those who don't know. Where is it exactly? Fergana is between Tashkent and the Chinese border at Kashgar. So it's this last patch of fertile land before you enter Xinjiang and eastern China. This mm. is all, as I say, to the east of the Caspian Sea and to the north of the Himalayas, the Pamirs, and Afghanistan. A vast so there, region. there are natural borders here, uh, thanks to mountains and rivers. But as far as Russia is concerned, the Orenburg Line is very important. Now, remind us what the Orenburg Line is. Yes, so the Orenburg Line is where the Russian Empire stops, really, from the period of Catherine the Great for 100 years. And it is the line which, to this day, marks southern Russia from the Stans. And south of that, by the time we're talking about, which is now the 1830s, 1840s, 1850s, you have three major powers 
dividing this territory between them. You have the, the Sultan of Kiva, of Bukhara, and Kokand. And these three are often at war with each other. But what is very important is that they are technologically very backward, particularly in terms of military techniques. Occasionally, sepoys fleeing British rule and wanting to make names for themselves make their way through Afghanistan and emerge and do a little training. But these guys are still really fighting with matchlocks and and the sort of weaponry that the late moguls were using in the late 18th century, which means, and this is the important thing, that it's very, very easy for the Russians to make mincemeat of them in any military confrontation. Although, I mean, you say it's easy, but they do have to get around, and they can't get around unless they have camels. And camels <laughs> <laughs> camels pose a little bit of a difficulty, because, I mean, it's not just that everyone's got camels on tap, do they? <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> yes. and, and, and you and I have both been reading Alexander Morrison on this, and he's very good on how it's very difficult to conquer this region, not because there's military resistance or magnificent fortifications to stop you, but because you have to move through thousands of miles of desert. And in order to move one camel through desert, you have to have another camel carrying its food. Right. And so you have these massively uh, sort of exponentially growing camel caravans following- Two camels per person. Two or three or four camels per person. Yeah, yeah. And then the more yeah. camels you have, the more camels you have to have to support the camels. So even a small force of one or 2,000 men needs 20, 30, 40,000 camels mm. to carry. And, and it's not an easy thing to gather, 20,000 no. camels. <laughs> I mean, if there is no place called Camels Are Us where you just turn up. I mean, you have to round these things up. And it takes months. And then you have to get the fodder to feed them and you have to feed them up. So in all this, if they can get through the desert and through this very inhospitable territory, the Russians know that quite a small, highly trained, militarized force with modern weaponry and canister shells and so on can destroy uh, an army very easily. Getting there is the main problem. So let's talk about the really important characters during this very pivotal period, the 1850s, 60s and 70s. So we've got now a new czar who is in charge. This is Alexander II, who Orlando Figes told us in a previous episode, was known as Alexander the Liberator because of what he would do for the serfs of Russia. And this is a, a young man who has grown up overpowered by a very dominating father, Nicholas I, authoritarian, militarily obsessed. Alexander, though, has a, a different kind of moral intellectual compass, doesn't he? I mean, he's he's been sort of entrusted to the poet Vasily Zhukovsky, who's, who's a humanitarian, he's a liberal, he's a romantic, you might say. And I think this is something that Seabag mentions in his writing. He was the best prepared Romanov czar, and said even though he was quite emotional and at times absent-minded, he sort of had the best of every world and enough facets to deal with, with a modernizing world. Exactly that. And one of the things that baffles historians studying this is, is why do the Russians end up conquering Central Asia under this man who's not a sort of a gung-ho military imperialist? How is it that these tens of thousands of miles are conquered during his rule? Historians have offered various ideas of why the Russians would want to move these camel caravans. Go on, tell us about the cotton canard. The cotton canard. Oh, tell us. So tell the us. old Marxist view is that everything is driven by the industrial complex and that the Russians wanted to conquer this whole entire region in order to sell their goods and grow cotton. But it doesn't seem to work historically because in the 1830s and 40s, when this conquest is being made, cotton is not yet big business in Russia. The, the dates are wrong. That just predates it completely. Yeah. This is a retrospective explanation saying we, we aren't really imperialists. 
we just tripped into an empire and it just doesn't hold water. And the second idea that they want it to expand their markets doesn't really work because uh, there's never been more than about apparently 2.5% of Russian exports going to Central Asia. So that idea doesn't work. The great game idea, which which generations of historians have, have loved because it's such a kind of romantic notion, these gung-ho uh, explorers in disguise crossing the Pamirs and so on, that also doesn't actually seem to be that realistic because while the Russians and the British are certainly eyeing each other jealously and not wanting the other to move into their spheres of influence, both of them can't really get to the other because they haven't got the camels, there's mountains in between and there's Afghanistan in between. So in actual fact, for all the talk about a great game, and while it's certainly something that both sides are aware of, practically, you're not going to get Cossacks riding down the Khyber Pass, much though you know people in Simla will sit up at night worrying about it for generations. But what you do have is a period of history where Russia has been humiliated after the Crimean War. What you have is a period of time where you've got a new boy who's in charge who wants to put his stamp of authority on his rule. And what you've got is a period of wanting to save face. More than that, not just wanting to save face, but wanting to be glorious again. And that is a, I mean, when you look at some of the documents that certainly Morrison has dug up from his research in the Russian archives, it is all about this, that we have to show people we matter. We have to show the world that Russia is important. And there's two different things going on here. One is the orders from on high. And, you know, Russia is obviously very keen to encourage its borders to expand and seeing how easily Britain is doing that in various other theatres. Again, we mustn't forget this, how easily the United States at this period is expanding right across the whole left-hand side of of the United States. Between 1840 and 1880, Mm. the United States conquers, colonizes, and settles the entire left-hand half of America. And the Native American tribes are driven into ever smaller and smaller enclaves and massacred over and over again. Mm. So Russia, looking at this, has a desire to be seen to be one of the great powers, and that is what, in the 19th century, great powers are said to do. But again, this crucial fact is that because the Central Asians are still armed with basically 18th century weaponry, And the Russians, however difficult that they find it to get around, are armed with the latest mid-19th century rifles that can destroy irregular armies of the 18th century sort in Central Asia. And Morrison gives a figure. He says that in the entire conquest of Central Asia... Six million people in 1.5 million million square miles. miles, Only 677 Russians are killed. Yeah. It's an extraordinary low figure. And so when you have the ability to do that without any cost, they will do it. Well, look, Alexander the Liberator, this news are, he appoints a very young man in the form of 26-year-old Count Nikolai Ignatov, who's going to lead this secret mission in 1858 to Central Asia to discover just how far they might be able to push out and how far the British have already pushed in in the region. And I love this story. I love this story so much. One of the first things he does is he goes to London, does he not? Just the year before he's about to go to Central Asia and he's buying up all the maps. And buying <laughs> up Burns's travelogue. He's, he reads Alexander Burns. Burns' yeah. travelogue, Alexander Burns again, and he's buying up these maps. And then somehow the foreign office has tipped off that there's this weird Russian guy. A clever, wily fellow, according to the intelligence reports. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's what they write. A clever, wily fellow who's buying up all these maps. You might want to know about it. He's just sitting in secondhand bookshops in St. James's. I don't think it's, you know, it's that sort of 
tricky this intelligence work it's sort of it's not that cloak and dagger but they do notice so they follow him around and he's very much described as this sort of machiavellian figure who is you know gathering intel and needs to be watched but in 1858 as i say armed with these maps that he's bought in the streets of london and other things he goes off doesn't he to central asia and what does he find there william just tell us what do his adventures teach him well, because he's read Alexander Burns' account, and it should be said, Alexander Burns' self-glorifying account of him moving up the Indus with those famous Suffolk dray horses and the Lord Mayor of London's coach, he tries to do the same thing on the Oxus. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately for him, he comes up against Emir Nasrullah, mm. who is this uh, famously wily Emir of Bukhara. And Nasrullah gets a very rough <laughs> character assessment from a lot of the Raj travelogues. He's killed two famous British explorers called Stoddart and Connolly who get to Bukhara and they are beheaded in 1842 when the emir hears about the retreat from Kabul and how the British can no longer exercise any power. And he just cuts the head off these two people after keeping them for a long time in this famous pit in Bukhara. Mm. And Ignatiev decides to court this guy. I have to put in here the famous thing that the Uzbek slavers do. We had that whole series on slavery without actually doing the slavers of Central Asia, which is an entire series. And it's one we could have actually spent an episode on very profitably because it's an extraordinary story. But the particularly nasty thing that the slavers of Bukhara perfected and the Uzbek slavers were famous for was they used to do slave raids on northern Afghanistan on areas like Mazar Sharif and Balk. And if you were captured by these guys, They were carpet makers, and they had these long carpet needles, which they used to weave Hmm. their carpets with. I'm feeling worried now, yes. And they used to sew a rope, a thin rope, with a carpet needle under your clavicle (laughs) to connect you to the next man in the slave trade. So you couldn't run away without ripping yourself apart. So you couldn't run away. And if you tried to run away, or if you didn't keep up, if you were weak and, and stumbling and slowing down the caravan of slaves heading back across the desert to Bukhara, the pain of your clavicle being dislocated was so terrific that it would force you however sore and however exhausted you were. And if you were tied, for example, to the back of a saddle and stumbling with your hands tied in front of you. So they were a particularly nasty bunch of slaves. Can I just and- say, people can be so rubbish. But this is the sort of thing, and it's true, and, and Emir Nasrullah is actually enslaving as well as a lot of Afghans and selling them in the slave markets of Central Asia. Mm. He's also enslaving lots of Russians, and this obviously pisses off the Russians. <laughs> yeah, well, understandably <laughs> uh, so. But also gives an excuse to Ignatiev and so on. So to- Ignatiev is, is wooing him nonetheless, even though this man is really a very unpleasant character. Yeah. But he isn't wooed. He doesn't buy it, does he? I mean, he's not hes not somebody to be flattered into giving away either intel or land. So what does he do? He just stops Ignatiev. He gives him a nice welcome, uh, gives him some presents and sends him back again, doesn't allow him right. to float his raft any further down the Oxus than he's already got. So then when is the next push? Who tries again and how do they try again? It's, it's Ignatiev again, isn't it, who tries? Or So Ignatiev has brought this area very much into the focus of Imperial Russia. He is lauded in St. Petersburg. He's given medals. He's very much the the Alexander Burns of his day. And he goes off on a mission to China. He goes on horseback to Beijing in the spring of 1859. He writes more books. And by this stage, he's become a, a major celebrity. So in 1860, he is back in Russia. He's got the Order of St. Vladimir. Because he's brought... Big chunks of China. So now they've got the taste for imperialism. 
Exactly that. Mm. And he's shown, in a sense, how easy it is and and how much prestige and honor you can get back home if you do this. So all the next generation of Russians on the Orenburg line dream now of being like Ignatiev and making their name in the conquest of Central Asia. Mm -hmm. So the next character who wants to emulate the success of Ignatiev and make his name in the conquest of Central Asia is a character called Chernayev. And we're going to stop here. So join us after the break when we find out what Chernayev manages to do that his hero Ignatiev does not manage to do. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome back. So just before the break, we were talking about the birth pangs of what will become a huge imperial drive in Russia with Ignatiev, who has had his eye on Central Asia, but failed to capture it. So it goes off to China and takes chunks of that instead. But it has started off this appetite within imperial Russia that, you know, actually, maybe we can get Central Asia as well. Maybe that could be ours as well. And 1865 becomes a very important year. And I think we should just focus on on this place, Tashkent. Now, first of all, just tell us where Tashkent is and, and why it's important. So at the beginning of 1865, the southern border of the Russian Empire is still at Orenburg. And Tashkent is no less than 1,000 miles south of that. But it's very difficult territory. It's desert. It's difficult to get troops through it. And now this character, Chernayev, General Mikhail Chernayev, who's an ambitious, impulsive veteran of the Crimean War, who's used to using the new rifles, canister shot, horse artillery, all that weaponry that Orlando Fijis was talking about being developed in the Crimean War. He's willing and able to take this new technology south a thousand miles to Tashkent. So Chernayev is a really interesting character because he has failure and success woven into his DNA. His father was one of those who was successful against Napoleon. So, you know, he has those great victories and the clanking of medals in his family. And yet he was active during the Crimean War where Russia felt humiliated. So here is a man who wants to prove himself, who wants to, you know, restore the the honor that his father had brought to the family in, in, in many ways. And he, I mean, he hasn't got a very large force, which is really interesting to adventure into this region. Was it only 1,300 strong? This again is, is, is very much part of the course because while they've got the modern weaponry, they haven't got the railway. They haven't got the modern transport. 
Mm-hmm. So they've got mid-19th century weaponry with all its ore and uh, shells and artillery and all that kind of thing, but they're still moving on camels mm-hmm. through the desert. And so there's two different centers of power that Chennaif is eyeing up. Emir Nasrullah is in Bukhara, but he decides to go for Nasrullah's great rival, who is the Khan of Kokand. And I've been to Kokand. It's in Fagan. There's this wonderful palace with successive courtyards full of all the knickknacks imported both from Russia and from British India. And the Khan of Kokand has captured Tashkent. Now, Tashkent is one of these ancient caravan cities. Tamerlane took it. Babur's uncle is buried there. Lots of wonderful architecture looking very like uh, Mughal Delhi. Uh, and it's this that Chennai aims for. He's going now for the Khan of Kokand. I mean, on paper, it doesn't look like a sensible idea, does it? There are 30,000 troops defending Tashkent. Yeah, and he's only got 1,300. But he knows that they've only got matchlocks. Yeah, yeah exactly. They, there's just a superior firepower that he has at his disposal. What is also interesting is that those numbers do not look good to the Tsar. <laughs> he says, what are you doing? And he sends a telegram saying, just come back. This is not a good idea. Do not, do not, I repeat, do not go and attack Tashkent with those kind of numbers. But Chennaiyev knows this telegram probably contains this order. So he doesn't open it. He just he just leaves it, <laughs> it sealed and doesn't tell his staff that he's had a direct order from the Tsar, which he suspects is a don't do it. Um, and he just leaves, leaves it unopened, thinking that actually, you know what, if I can just do this, I can be glorious like my father. And Chennaiyev sets off from Orenburg with an amazingly small force of 1,300 troops knowing that he's going to face people of about 10 times that number in Tashkent. And his first engagement is at a place called Auli Atta. And that falls almost without a single casualty, because as he casually remarks in a letter to his father, it was raining and the Kokandi garrison's matchlocks were left unusable. Just that's it, just soggy weather. Same thing at Plassey. At Plassey, the, the British had, right. had tarpaulins, which they covered their, their artillery, and the Mughals didn't. And that's mm-hmm. what one the British Bengal is what gets Chernayev all the way to the walls of Tashkent. But once he gets to Tashkent, he finds this is one of the the great ancient fortresses of Central Asia. Uh, There are huge numbers of defenders, and he starts the siege. He cuts off the water. He does all the things that he's supposed to do, and he's still only got now you know just over a 1,000 troops. What does he do? So he decides just to go for it. He has scaling mm-hmm. ladders, and there's an incredible piece of luck when they make their assault. They first of all organize a distraction. A small force pretends to be attacking the back, so all the defenders go around to the back of the city. And as they're moving forward in the moonlight with their scaling ladders in the ready, they see a single sentry standing outside the walls. And this raises Chenev's suspicions, and they capture the man, and they ask him what he's doing there, and they prod him with their bayonets, and he reveals that there's a secret passage hidden on the outside of the walls, covered by felt. So no one can hear anybody. How interesting. Uh, which leads into the city, and it leads up to a platform on the walls. Mm. So just at the moment that the guns start going off on the rear uh, of the city, and all the defenders are drawn off in that direction, the Russians slip into the city, like the Greeks into Troy. They capture the walls, and there's this terrific fight. And there's this, there's this figure in all the accounts, the priest. 
Oh, Father Malov. Father Malov with Tell his crucifix. Tell us about Father Malov. Yeah, Father he's amazing. Father is armed only with a large crucifix that he bonks uh, people on the head with and apparently stays after the conquest of Tashkent for the rest of his life, trying to make conversions to Orthodox Christianity in the city. But this, again, is one of these classic colonial conquests of a basically unarmed people or people armed mm. with, with weaponry so antiquated that it just can't stand up. And this tiny force captures this great city in a single night. I have a question. Now, the Tsar said, don't do it. And he went and done it. So is the Tsar happy or a bit annoyed that he's not being listened to? The Tsar's delighted uh, okay. and calls him the Lion of Tashkent and uh, gives him all the medals. And this is very much the, the nature of the Russian expansion into Central Asia, exactly the same as the British in India. There is a major technological difference between the, the weapons used by the attackers and that used by the defenders. And so officers on the spot can just take decisions and take risks and, you know, defeat armies 10 times bigger than them. And this is read in 19th century rhetoric as, as the superiority of Europeans, as yeah. the, the bravery of, of these fine Aryan stock and all this racist nonsense. In actual fact, it's just that one lot have got 18th century weapons, the other lot have got mid 19th century rifles that can fire at double the length. And, and when you have these set piece battles that follow uh, for the capture of the next group of cities, Bukhara and Samarkand, you have exactly the same thing happening, that, that these guys simply cannot defend themselves. And particularly this matter of range, if the army lines up, the matchlocks fire about 200 yards, but the modern Russian rifles can fire half a mile, and mm. they just stay out of range uh, of the defenders and shoot their way into them. Yeah, and they don't mind if it's not a sunny, lovely day. It's they can do it in any weather. <laughs> exactly. um, so, so I mean, you said the Tsar was delighted, and yes, he was, and he did call him the, the Lion of Tashkent, but they called him back to St. Petersburg because he's proven himself to not listen. He's been a sort of slightly disobedient, naughty boy. So exactly. he does get called back. That said, in the entire conquest, he lost only 25 Russian dead. Sure, but... Captured 10,000 miles of territory. It lo looks good on paper, but if you are the Tsar and you know that this is a guy who's just not listening, uh, you know, I think it, it's true to say that Chenayev, although he's celebrated, his stock falls, plummets when he comes back to St. Peter's yeah. because he's not allowed to go out and uh, they can't trust him to follow orders. He's, he's deemed to be too impulsive, too proud and too ambitious. So they rein him in. So what happens next? Who do they turn to next and where are they turning to next? Because now they've got a taste for it. They're making inroads into, into Central Asia. And as you say, there's, there's, there's these tiny casualties. They've, they've just lost 25 troops to capture 10,000 miles of desert. And Chenev creates a great appetite for a sort of new, renewed imperial thrust into Central Asia. And the man who takes that forward is General Konstantin von Kaufmann. He amasses his troops and marches on Samarkand, this ancient center of Central Asian culture. And the cost for this, again, is, is this these ridiculous figures. There's only two Russian lives lost and 31 wounded in the taking of Samarkand. Oh, and tell us about Samarkand. Samarkand being the great capital of Tamerlane, who had conquered Muscovy. So this, for the Russians, is a great sort of reversal of the uh, of the tables of history. First, the, the Golden Horde comes and attacks Muscovy. Now Moscow has come back and taken Samarkand. 
And as important as it is to the restoration of, of Muscovy's pride to, to take it, it is also crushing for the people of Central Asia because Tamerlane is a hero to them. So to have his tomb suddenly seized by the enemy, I mean, that, that has got to have a, a terrible effect on morale and also, you know, inspires fear of who are these people who are coming in with small forces and just wiping us out. And when you go to Samarkand today, you know, you go there and there is the tomb of, of Tumalain sitting in the middle of the amazing astronomy that Ulu Beg, uh, his descendant, built. All these extraordinary, vast buildings built with the plunder of India, of Turkey. They defeat the Ottoman Turks to the, the taking of, uh, of Moscow. Uh, so all this wealth and loot has been brought back to Samarkand, but now Samarkand has been taken with literally two Russian dead in the entire conquest. So all that's left is Emin Azrullah of Bukhara. The not very nice man running Bukhara. I mean, how does that go? Does that go any differently to the, the sort of the routes at Samarkand? No, exactly the same. Uh, it, it's it's a cakewalk. And then there's one final one to go, which is Kiva. And when you visit Central Asia today, Kiva is many many people's favorite. It's, it's, it's in the middle of this vast desert. Uh, these ancient, ancient walls that look as if they're, you know, going back to the time of Alexander the Great. They they mm. slope and have these wonderful wooden struts coming out of it. It's pure Tolkien. And 1869 to 73 is the period when the uh, the Russians wipe out this last remaining outpost of free Central Asia, ruled by mm. its own people. I, I mean, I've, I've read somewhere that it's two and a half thousand years old, Kiva. Yeah, no, all these cities are, 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 you know, were old at the time of Alexander yeah. uh, and are, are major centers of ancient learning. But the Russians just wiped the whole thing through in a, in a matter of 10 or 15 years. And it seems like a, a very casual conquest because it's done with such ease and with such speed. But this really matters because this remains in Russian hands for 130 years. And they've added to the Tsar's territory 1.5 million square miles. I mean, we, we should say that, you know, when you have conquest on, on this level, although we're saying that there are hardly any Russian casualties, that's not to say there aren't casualties, because there are some dreadful massacres that take place. I mean, there's the massacre of Yomut, which takes place where I mean, it is as banal as this, because they've had such an easy time walking into these places and taking these places, and the rain has fallen and matchlocks have got damp and all of that kind of thing. There is this one moment where they decide that, uh, you know, the men need to have a little trot out, otherwise they're going to explode because they've been expecting to fire. And that is why you have this dreadful massacre that takes place in your mood, where men, women and children in their hundreds, if not thousands, are, are taken, gathered and, and shot. So again, you know, this is not an empire that is, is built upon only a few bodies. There is an awful lot of blood that sinks into the sand. And where does this leave Russia now after, you know, we're talking now, we're, we're sort of in the 1880s now. Um, so what shape is Russia in? So in this newly conquered Central Asian territory is finally demarcated between Russia and Britain. The borders are drawn. The Northwest Afghan border is established. The Russians take one Afghan fort at a place called Panjie, and Britain comes close to threatening war. So they both then sort of back down, and the borders delineated in 1885 and 1886. And the point that Alexander Morris makes, which I think is right, is that far from this being a sort of eternal conquest of two rivals who uh, fear each other, in actual fact, it's like a club dividing up Asia between these two European powers. 
Mm. Uh, and the Russians are given their sphere of influence. The British are given their sphere of influence. Afghanistan has agreed to be a buffer zone between them. And it's all organized to the great profit and enrichment of the European powers at the expense of the people that live there. And also, I mean, it puts pay to this argument that often comes from modern day Moscow and Putin, which is, you know, the British have blood on their hands. You know, the Americans are modern day imperialists. They have blood on their hands. But, you know, Russia's not been an imperialist country before. I mean, it has. And these hands are not clean. When you go to Tashkent today, there's still quite a large Russian population. There are these two parallel worlds that survive. There are Russian enclaves where there are ethnic Russians, there are Russian restaurants, Russian clubs, and relations are not bad at all. It's surprisingly easy, but the influence of this long 130 years of conquest is still you know, very much evident in, in human form. In 1989, when the, the Soviet empire fell apart, you had many of the Russians going back to what became the new borders of Russia, but many remained and they're still there. So, so there's been, a, you know, in a sense, a permanent genetic fallout of this in a way that you, know, you don't find many Brits still living in India, myself excluded. Apart from you. <laughs> Apart from me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you don't find many French at all in Algeria, but there's still a significant Russian minority in Tashkent and all over Uzbekistan. So we have one more episode to see us through to the peak of the Russian Empire, and no one better to take us there than Tolstoy himself. Tolstoy fought, as we saw, as a young man in the Crimea. He's in the Caucasus fighting Imam Shmael, and his early works, like the Cossacks, are set in these regions. So um, we're going to have Rosamund Butler on next week talking about the literature of Russian imperialism. And it's not just Tolstoy, there's Pushkin, Lermontov, and a whole range of extraordinary Russian writers who have immortalized this in a sense far more than was done by British writers in India. I'm always amazed how thin the literary pickings are of English literature in India. There's Forster, Paul Scott, a little bit of Thackeray and Kipling, but there's pretty thin stuff. While the literature of Russian imperialism is, is Pushkin, Lermontov, and Tolstoy, mm-hmm. which is a, a much more formidable team. Anyway, we'll be returning next week with Rosamund Bartlett on Tolstoy. So do join us then. Till then, it is goodbye from me, Anita Arnand. And goodbye from me, William Durimple. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) 
Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts.